Sports fans of all ages, faces, and places from every stadium, arena, and auditorium all over the world. May I have your attention, please? Well, time's coming when we're going to have to handy up. Handy up and kick in like men. Like men! It is now time to bring to your listening ears, hearts, and minds a sports podcast named Wendell's World in Sports. With the one and only Wendell Wallace. Tell him how you feel. A podcast that gives you strong, passionate, unapologetic, uncompromised thoughts and opinions about the everyday happenings in the NFL. And college football to the NBA in my Georgetown Hoyas. Giannis fires one down at an exclamation point for Milwaukee. To any other sporting news of the day. And now, introducing the man whose love of sports was born and bred on the greatest Muhammad Ali, Lynn Baez, Magic Johnson, Bernard King, and Eric Dickerson, Wendell Wallace. Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur, mademoiselle, je m'appelle Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World of Sports, so glad that you could be with us. Konnichiwa, namaste, wassalamu alaikum, so glad that you could be with us. Good morning, good abend, que pasa, mi amigos, mi amo Wendell Wallace, standing amongst the tallest, Wendell's World of Sports, so glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get down on and discuss today in the world of sports. Anywhere where you listen to your favorite podcast, iHeart, iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, do me a favor. If you could go ahead, if you could download, if you could subscribe, rate, review, follow, most importantly, enjoy the most unique, entertaining, thought-provoking sports talk podcast that you can listen to, hosted by yours truly, I would very much appreciate it. Going to be speaking about the um, NBA today, going to be speaking about the uh, Summer League, of course, spending a lot of time on the debut of Victor Wimbanyana, the number one pick of the San Antonio Spurs, the generational great, the guy who's going to be dominating the league for years to come, going to be speaking about his performance, going to be speaking about some of the winners and the losers in free agency, in the NBA, speaking about the team that did well, going to go through all that stuff. But I, I want to start with this, because we're, here we are almost in the middle of July. I'm recording this on a Tuesday morning. This is sort of the slow period in sports in terms of the only thing that you've got these last couple of days has been Wimbledon, which I've been following, but that's across the uh, pond, shall we say, in England and in this country, unless there's an American doing really well and has established himself as one of the best players in the world and you really need about two or three of those, then for the most part, the coverage and the interest and the dedication to coverage in this country the racist, ignorant, divided states of America when it comes to tennis really falters greatly. Really doesn't matter that Novak Djokovic is doing well. Doesn't matter that Chris Eubanks is in the semifinals or trying to go to the semifinals. It really doesn't matter anything in terms of the men and women's game that's going to really capture the attention and really hold the attention of the uh, everyday sports fan here in this country. So they kind of put that on the back burner and they want to talk about what's happening with James Harden, what's happening with Damian Lillard and what's going on with the Jets and Aaron Rodgers and training camp and the NFL coming up in about three weeks or so. So we're, we're starting to make that pivot toward that. And they really don't pay too much attention to this All-Star game that's happening in baseball this evening between the, it's still the National League and the American League. Here's the deal, man, and here's where I'm embarrassed to say that uh, when it comes to baseball, I, I I really am not there. When it comes to baseball, for me, it's, it's, it's 
kind of plateaued. It's kind of plummeted till the to the uh, level of of soccer uh, for me in this country. And it was interesting because I was watching uh, made, I was watching baseball tonight on ESPN. And it's very rare that you have uh, ESPN having a show dedicated to baseball, talking about the news and the happenings in the everyday. I mean, you have inside the NBA with, and you have the guys on TNT with basketball, and you have um, college game day with football on ESPN, and you have the uh, Fox show uh, dealing with college football, and of course the uh, NFL game. You have uh, you know the guys on uh, CBS, and you have the guys on Fox. There, there really isn't, unless maybe you want to go toward Fox for the game of the week. Um, you, but you really don't have that type of show that has that type of presence, that has that type of impact, that has that type of residue on the sport that the uh, Charles Barkleys and the Shaquille O'Neals and the Ernie Johnsons and the Malika Andrews and the Kendrick Perkins and the Richard Jeffersons and the uh, Matt Leinerts and the you know the guy all across the spectrum of uh, the Terry Bradshaws when they're speaking about their, their sports, the Lee Corsos of the world when they're speaking about their sports, the Jay Billises when they're speaking about their sports. So it's, it's interesting when I was taking a look and I was taking a look at this baseball tonight and they were going over the All-Star game because again, the All-Star game is going to be played tonight in Seattle. They had the home run contest um, last night, which I had no interest in, just like in the NBA, I have no interest in the slam dunk contest after a while, especially when you're watching the uh, home run derby, it just kind of gets repetitious as they just swing, hit, swing, hit, swing, hit. And then after the first couple of shots that go over 400 feet, it's like, okay, this is kind of getting repetitious. I don't know if that's the uh, ADHD of not just me, but our lack of attention and lack of focus that we can have as, as human beings. Now, since everything is instant, now, since we live in a society, since we live in a world where we want it now, 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 we are very impatient as a society. So a, a game like baseball, which has a certain pace, which is slow, despite the fact that they have put in a, a pitch count or a pitch clock, which has sped up the games. And now the romanticism of sitting there watching a four-hour baseball game, which goes nine innings between the Red Sox and the Yankees, is no longer palatable. Major League Baseball finally found that out and uh, kind of put in that pitch, pitch count and tried to do some things to speed up the game, put more rhythm into the game. But you know what? It's it's interesting. And one of the reasons why I think baseball is kind of lagging or it doesn't have because Ravage, Carl Ravage and um, Carl Ravage and who else was speaking about this? And I was kind of talking about, well, yeah, the reason why is because you clowns are out there talking about it. Carl Ravage and uh, Buster Olney and uh, Tim Kirchin. We're out there speaking about, oh, remember back in the 70s, and oh, remember back in the 60s, and oh, remember the first All-Star game, and Carl Hubble struck out Lou Gehring, and Babe Ruth, and Mel Ott, and Hank Greenberg, and blah, 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 and you speak about Jackie Robinson, and you speak about the 1971 All-Star game, or 72 All-Star game, where Reggie Jackson hit that home run over, out, you know, out of, uh, out of the, the, the Tiger Stadium and all this kind of stuff. And they're going on about Ted Williams and Joe DiMaggio. And and I'm thinking to myself, man, this is the reason why baseball hasn't sustained itself like it has, like, like it was, like when it was truly the American game, when it truly was the king of all sports, at least American sports uh, back in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s. This summer I've been watching um, the first couple of episodes of 
Baseball by Ken Burns. And at the turn of the uh, 20th century and going into the 20s and the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, they were speaking about how intertwined baseball culture and baseball was with, with Americana, with the everyday of, of the society. In fact, I've always said this before, a guy who loves history, and a guy who wants to always talk about history in terms of uh, civil rights and women's rights and those type of things to the younger generation who I feel do not get anywhere close to the education that they should get in terms of where they are today living in the society that they are living in today and the importance of people who are not in the history books and the contributions that they made to where they can have, um, you know, uh, live in the world that they live in today and uh, feast on some of the positive that this country has to offer. And players and events and happenings and musicians and actors and other things that you're not going to see in history books on how those people were just as responsible of making the life that you live today some of the goodies and the treats of this society that you are able to indulge in without thinking twice, which it, with it being nothing more than just in the everyday, that how responsible those guys are and how, how important those guys are. And I feel that out of any other sport, football, basketball, hockey, tennis, maybe the only thing more important to the world that we live in today as far as sports is concerned is boxing, but other than that, baseball has contributed to the way that we live today. When you're speaking about how important baseball was back in the day, when you are speaking about the Hannes Wagners, when you are speaking about the Christy Mathewsons, when you are speaking about the Babe Ruths, when you are speaking about the Mickey Mantles, when you are, of course, speaking about the Larry Dobies, when you are speaking about the Jackie Robinsons, when you are speaking about Joe DiMaggio's, when you are speaking about uh, the Frank Robinsons, when you are speaking about those iconic figures who I'm quite sure about 90% of of people under the age of 30 and 25 have no idea what you're speaking about. No idea what you're speaking about. They don't understand how those ball players, just like in the field of boxing where you have Joe Lewis and Jack Dempsey and Jack Johnson and Sugar Ray Robinson and those people, how important that they were. Hank Armstrong, how important that they were. Muhammad Ali, of course, how important that they are in terms of the way that they're living today, some of the rights and the privileges and the things that they take for granted, how important that it was for those players, for those athletes to do what they needed to do to make a, to, 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 to build that foundation to where the younger generation and the generation of today has things and goes through things and associates with people that, uh, you know, 50, 60, 30, 20 years ago would have been impossible. So it's, it's, I, I understand the impact, and it's a shame that as we move on in this society, that the impact of the Negro Leagues, the impact of a Satchel Paige, the impact of a Bob Feller, the impact of a Babe Ruth, the impact of a Lou Gehrig, the impact of these athletes become less and less and less and less, to where again, I'm quite sure if you ask the, you ask a teenager, Eight, four, between the ages of 14 and 18, if you ask someone in high school 
a freshman and a senior between those um, <clears throat> freshman and senior, if you ask them anything about Babe Ruth, if you ask them about Lou Gehring, if you ask them about Joe DiMaggio, if you ask them about Ted Williams, if you ask them about Bob Feller, if you ask them about Jackie Robinson, if you ask them about Willie Mays, if you ask them about Hank Aaron, if you ask them about Hank Greenberg, if you ask them about all of these great players and the contributions that they made, or even, hell, if you've even heard of these people, I'm quite sure 9 out of 10 would get a blank stare like, who? Lou Gehrig, who? Babe Ruth, who? Heard of the guy, I think. Oh yeah, what was he? I have no idea. I mean, that's what you would get. And it's a shame. And it's, uh, you know, it's something I think that is uh, hurting our society along with other things. I don't think I'm putting it at the top of the list there. But I think an understanding and a uh, respect for what those ball players did to help our community the way that it is today and understanding what they did to help our community and where they are today and why they can enjoy some of the fruits of the labor that they sacrificed for the younger generation to have the life that they're living right now and have not and not have to deal with the bullshit and the other nonsense at the same level of degree that uh, some of these players went through I think that's important. I think it's a shame that that's being overlooked. But, you know, you, you speak about going way back to this game, this uh, game tonight, and the discussion of baseball and Kirchens and Ravages is, uh, you know, kind of going on and on and on about what happened, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. I, I think it doesn't do anything to move the game. I think that you're, you're, you're really limiting your conversation to a very small space. And I've heard Ravage, uh, who does not only the um, Major League Baseball game for ESPN, but he also, or the Sunday Night Baseball game for ESPN, he also does the um, college baseball. He also does the Little League uh, World Series. So here's a guy who I think is really invested in the game. He's, he's come on the Buster Olney podcast and spoke many times about what we need to do to broaden the love and acceptance and reverence for the game of baseball. Now with football, it's never going to, baseball is never going to be in the position Position that it was uh, 80, 70, 60, 50, 40, even 30 years ago. It's not going to be there. Football in this country is too indebted, it's too embedded, it's too important um, to ever be leapfrogged, to ever be uh, taken over in terms of popularity, in terms of interest, like um, like it is right now. Football is always going to be king. I, I don't see any way, shape, or form that baseball is ever going to get back to the perch that it was before football in the uh, late 60s, early 70s really took over in terms of being the king of sports in terms of what we speak about. But it ain't going to be talking about what Babe Ruth did and what Jackie Robinson did and what Larry Doby did on the day that uh, Major League Baseball is going to be uh, playing this All-Star game. And then Butcher Olney and and Tim Kirchin talking about how wonderful it was, I believe, in 1999 when uh, they were talking about Ted Williams being the greatest living ball player of all time, to which I'm quite sure Willie Mays and Hank Aaron were sitting there going, really? Um, but, uh, you know, that uh, scene out of... Fenway Park, and of course, it was all, you know, all, it, it, it was it was laid out perfectly in the fact that Fenway Park, Ted Williams, American hero, war hero, one of the greatest hitters of all time, great player, Hall of Famer, uh, they had all the great Hall of Famers come out, the 
before Miss Pedro Martinez had on that nice striking, striking out Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa and Barry Larkin and such. One of the uh, great all-time memorable all-star Major League Baseball all-star moments. Those, those things are great. Those things are awesome. For me, it's great. For me, it's interesting. I love hearing about the uh, old time, but that shouldn't be the that shouldn't be the generation. That shouldn't be the audience that you're trying to get. The the people that Ravage and Olney and Kirchin were speaking to and speaking about that you know, wrong crowd, folks. Wrong crowd because our generation, the people that you're talking to, they might be interested in sticking around, but the people that you should be trying to get. Those under the age of 35, those under the age of 40, you ain't getting any of them talking about Ted Williams and Hank Aaron, unfortunately. You're not going to be getting them speaking about Willie Mays. You're not going to be getting any of them speaking about the 27 Yankees. And I've been saying that for years and years and years. As wonderful, as awesome, as fantastic, as thrilling, as many times as I've watched baseball by Ken Burns and watch innings one, two, and three as I've watched them over and over and over. I have them DVR'd. I watched uh, the first couple of uh, first couple of episodes of baseball um, last weekend, I believe. I spent about five hours uh, going ahead and, and having them talk about Ty Cobb and the Negro Leagues and Jackie Robinson and integration and, 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 and all those things. Enjoyed it immensely. And before the summer's over, I'll probably be playing them again. But I'm not the guy you guys should be focusing on. And when they are ha- having these guys, and of course, this is 1994, so I don't know half of these guys are probably dead. I hope not. But um, but when you're speaking about when when you when you bring on the um, Billy Crystals of the world, and you bring on the Bob Cottises of the world, and you bring on the George Plimptons of the world, God rest his soul, and you bring on the George Wills of the world, and you hear them talk about baseball. It is the most boring, mundane, head-scratching nonsense that you'll ever hear in your life. I listen to these guys talk about baseball because they grew up in an era where baseball was king. It is not that way anymore. And they wax poetically about how wonderful the game of baseball is. And I'm thinking to myself, hey man, someone who's 16 years old is going to go through one ear and not the other. They ain't going to be listening to not just one word. word they're not going to be listening to one syllable that Bob Costas is going to be talking about, let alone have some type of impact for them to love the game of baseball. This stuff about, oh yeah, you know, me and my dad weren't getting along, so we went to see uh, Mickey Mantle play, and for the first time, me and my dad were speaking and we became friends, and I owe, I, I owe all that to the game of baseball. Come on, Bob, who the fuck are you talking about, man? Baseball, so you're trying to try to tell me exclusively that's what baseball is all about? You're going to try to tell me that folks who are diehard Kentucky Wildcat fans, who uh, grew up in Kentucky, who grew up near the Lexington, Kentucky era. You don't think that they have a story like that? You don't think Alabama football fans have a story about that? You don't think that uh, there's a team in the NBA that don't have stories about that? Hell, my whole whole, uh, childhood was focused around the NBA, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird. We have we had a whole community. The only reason why black folks and white folks came together at that time was because all the white folks loved Larry Bird and all the black kids loved Magic Johnson and the Lakers. All the white kids loved Larry Bird and the Boston Celtics. So that's what the reason why we went out on the playground up at Belpre and played basketball morning, noon, and night. It wasn't because of anything what baseball did. Hell, back in the D.C. area, we didn't even have a baseball team. So the only thing that gravitated us 
the only time that black and white kids ever came together in my neighborhood to do anything was when we were watching the NBA games or after we watched the NBA games, we would run up to the park and go play baseball and go play basketball. I mean, that's how me and my man David O'Neill became closer than brothers who's white. It was all because of basketball. It was all because of magic. It was all because of Larry Bird. It was all because of the NBA. So this nonsense about, oh, the, exclus- the exclusivity of baseball to bring things and people together, just be, it's like, come on, man, that's nonsense, and that's absolute bullshit. But they, they bring that out there every single time we speak about baseball. Every single time Kirchin comes in or one of these old farts come in and start speaking about baseball from their generation, man, it does not work with the younger generation. The generation you should be trying to see what you can do to bring in because that's the folks that you're losing because guess what unfortunately Shohei Otani and Mike Trout and those guys those those guys should be household names right up there with LeBron right up there with Steph right up there with Patrick Mahomes right up there with all those guys but the, 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 the most popular athletes today the most recognizable athletes today Mike Trout and Shohei Otani and Ronald Acuna Jr., all of those guys, Fernando Tatis Jr., all of those guys should be right up there with them. They have, especially when you're speaking about Tatis and you're speaking about some of these other young cats, I mean, they have the swag, they have the game, they have the presence, they have the aura, they have the charisma. They'd be right up there with old farts like LeBron and Steph and those guys who have been in the NBA going on now 14, 15 years. You know, it should be a situation where these young cats, you want to try to get some of these young guys out there to be, instead of following uh, Luca or following LaMelo Ball or following uh, Patrick Mahomes or, or following uh, uh, some of these other football players, you, you want to see what you can do to try to get them to fall in love with the game of baseball? Just go ahead and shove Ronald Acuna Jr. down our throats. Shove Fernando Tatis, despite all of his transgressions, despite all of his bad acts, have baseball shove Fernando Tatis Jr. down our throat. Have Major League Baseball shove Shohei Hotani down our throats. And leave Babe Ruth, and leave Joe DiMaggio, and leave Stan Musial, and leave Ty Cobb, and leave Larry Doby, and leave Kurt Gibson, and leave Sandy Koufax, and leave Mickey Mantle, and leave Roger Maris, and leave all those guys alone. I mean, hell, we went through a generation of baseball where all we did for, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12 years was just bash Barry Bonds. In one sentence, we would talk about how great Barry Bonds was. Then, on the second sentence, we would just trash him about what a bad guy that he was. And this was even before he got caught up in steroids. He was being talked about as, a, as, a, as an offensive, rude jerk back when he uh, won his first MVP with the Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh Pirates. So instead of celebrating that, all we would do, all baseball would do, We'll talk about what a bad guy he was. And then as he's chasing one of the most iconic numbers in sports history, what did baseball do? They allowed the American public to go on and on and on about how bad of a guy Barry Bonds was because he used steroids. So, I mean, we kind of missed a generation of baseball fans who should have been having Barry Bond posters up up against their wall and such, but instead all they did was talk about what a bad guy he was, what a horrible guy he was. Now, make no mistake about it, Barry Bonds was a jerk. 
I read the uh, book um, Bonds. I forgot who wrote it, but uh, yeah, he was a jerk. He learned to be a jerk from Willie Mays, who was a jerk when he was playing. And he taught Barry Bonds that you're so great that you need to be a jerk to everybody. I don't know what reason for, but he said basically you need you need to be a jerk to uh, people who work for you and for your teammates and, and other people because. I don't know what Willie Mays was talking about, but that's where Barry Bonds and, and, and learned to be a jerk from his god's father, um, Willie Mays. And Bobby Bonds' father wasn't that far from being a nice guy either. But but basically what I'm trying to say is we missed a whole generation of uh, kids now who followed MJ, who followed Bo Jackson, and followed all these folks. Instead of gravitating and admiring and wanting to be like Bonds, they all wanted to be like Mike. Bo knows that he knew how to get the money. Baseball didn't know on how to to uh, capture the uh, kids' imagination, the generation who could have grown up to be baseball fans of today who are having kids and passing along that love for them. So, yeah, man, that's my thing about uh, baseball moving on tonight, the All-Star game, man. The game has improved. The game is always going to be the same. The game fundamentally is fine. The game fundamentally is not going to change. The... Um, the, the the game the players are themselves are only going to get better they're only going to now since we have a pitch count now since uh you know we're allowing swag back into the games and the old timers like the Madison Bumgarners that generation is starting to fade out because oh how dare you show emotion after you hit a home run off me fuck you if you don't want him to show emotion strike that motherfucker out and then you can go ahead and start doing the cha cha the funky chicken and the James Brown too but um, yeah, it's good to see, you know, baseball starting to get some swag, baseball starting to get some personality, the game's becoming um, faster, the game's starting to become more rhythm, all of those things are fine. What we need to do is, again, start start having more of the younger generation of baseball players introduce them to the next generation so they become baseball fans, so on and so on and so on. And uh, that's my deal about baseball. Oh, uh, man. Victor Wimbanyana, right? Speaking about inter- speaking about generational greats. Speaking about where you were when he played his first game. Speaking about a guy who could become the next, uh, I don't know, crossover superstar, building the league, global superstar, blah, blah, blah. Victor Wimbanyana played his first two games of the season, even though they were preseason, even though they were summer league. One was very good. One was very bad. What's next for Wimbenyana? What's going to be? I know he ain't playing today, but what's going to be next for Wimbenyana? Short term and long term. I'm going to tell you what I think about Victor Wimbenyana in the short and the long. Wendell's World in Sports.
Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. All right, well, the debut of the most hyped NBA process, prospect since LeBron James, right? Did you guys get a get a look at Victor Wimbignana? What were you doing? Where were you at? What was your level of interest? First time playing an organized basketball game for, for him in three weeks. That was the excuse that he used against Charlotte. Um, his game against Portland played much better than he did against uh, Charlotte this past Sunday night or this past Sunday afternoon in Vegas against the Trailblazers. Without Scoot Henderson, scored 27 points, 9 of 14 field goals, 2 of 4 from the three-point line, 12 rebounds, 3 blocks in 27 minutes. From that game, from the first game in which um, he um, he was bad. I mean, you. I don't, I, there's, there's reasons why he didn't play up to expectations. There were reasons why he went two for 13. You could talk about new teammates. You could talk about didn't have any practice time. Was speaking about uh, really the first time in three weeks he can play. He played a competitive basketball game. Really didn't have any practice times. Was spreading himself thin with media obligations. All of those things can contribute. You can use as valid reasons um, on why Wembenyana played so poorly against Charlotte, but the bottom line is that he played poorly against Charlotte. Now, of course, only a fool and only a knucklehead would sit there and say, well, that's going to be the um, that's going to be the average, or that's what's going to be happening with Wimbanyana on a regular basis. Um, it, it, only a fool and only a knucklehead would sit there and, and label him a bust or a disappointment already. Just like only a fool and a knucklehead would sit there after he what he did against Charlotte, or excuse me, against uh, Portland, and then say, well, there you go. I told you Wimbanyana is going to uh, dominate the league. 82 games, my man and ladies, 82 games. Number one, if Wimbanyana plays anywhere between 64 and 72 games, that'll be a victory. That'll be a huge victory. That'll be an extremely successful season for Wimbanyana. And let's just say, for instance, uh, just round it off. Let's say he plays 70 out of 82 games, right? And six of those games is because of rest. uh, And the other games, maybe because of injury. If he only misses six games or eight games because of injury, his rookie year, that's a huge success. That's a monumental success. success. Victor Wembanyama. I don't give a damn how good he becomes. I don't care how great he becomes. I don't care how close to the expectation that he meets, even if he supersedes him, even if he um, outdoes the expectations that the most rose-colored glasses NBA fan had, the biggest Victor Wimbanyana fan, the mother, the father, the expectations for Victor Wimbanyana, even if Wimbanyana outdoes those tenfold, Victor Wembanyama should never, ever, ever in his NBA c- career play more than 75 games. And that's if he's at his absolute prime, dominating the league, meeting all expectations, being the global icon. And what every, the most most uh, positive person can, can say about Wembanyama, he should no way in, the Iron Man of Iron Man, there should be no way that he plays all 82 games. No my man should average at least somewhere between 70 and 75 games for the entirety of his career, which includes when he will be dominating the league. The most optimistic fan can uh, think so. So this nonsense about 
trying to take what he did in Summer League and say, well, based on what I saw against Charlotte, he's going to be a bust. What I saw against Portland, he's going to be the greatest thing since LeBron or MJ, I think is uh, irresponsible, irrational, and and absolutely um, ridiculous. In the game I saw against Portland, though, um, contrary to what I saw when I watched him the first game against Charlotte in the uh, Summer League out here in Vegas, Victor just seemed to be playing with a lot more, he was. He just seemed to be playing more fluidly, thinking a lot less, you know, just, just playing more and thinking less. Now, on the offensive end, was looking to impact more in the game against Portland compared to Charlotte. He was looking to be more impactful, more aggressive, uh, looked from the perimeter, I think. Again, going back to Charlotte, I think that he was thinking, and that attributed to his 2-for-13 shooting. I just think he just said in this game, fuck it. You know, I'm just going to go out there and I'm just going to wing it. I'm not going to worry about the crowd. I'm not going to worry about the expectations. I'm not going to be worrying about all that other nonsense. I'm just going to go ahead and I'm going to play my game. And there was a couple of forced shots that he took against Portland that he wouldn't have taken against Charlotte. Um, The um, Trailblazers, they bailed him out on a couple of contested bad shots, especially from the uh, three-point line. But... um, it was uh, it was interesting to see again when Benyana just kind of say okay I got the first game jitters out of the way um, I'm, I'm I'm not worried about trying to impress anybody right it's almost like you know when you meet that girl and you, you never get a second chance to meet that first to make that first impression so you want to watch what you say you want to make sure that you're dressed appropriately and you don't want to say this and you don't want to do this and you don't want to act that way you don't want to act this way so you try to be something that you're not. And you hate the fact that you have to be something that you're not. So you're trying to get a flow with this woman. You're trying to get a, a, a vibe, a rhythm with this woman. And you really can't because each time you say something and each time that the woman gives you a look, you're thinking to yourself, okay, was that a good move? Was that a bad move? Should I say this? Should I say that? Did that and the other? How's the thing going? It just You just become a nervous wreck, right? And then the second time you have the date, you just say, fuck it. I'm going to be me. And if she likes me, cool. If not, then that's, that's, that's all right. I think that was Wimbenyana. Wimbenyana, the first <laughs> that game against Charlotte, it was a situation where I want this female to like me, so let me do everything I can in my power to be something that I'm not to fit the profile or the ideal of what she thinks I am. And then in the game against Portland, he just said, fuck it, I'm going to be me. And if I get to sleep with her tonight, fine. If I get a second date with her or a third date with her, fine. If she hates my guts and never wants to see me again, that's cool too. So I think that was Wimbenyana. Um, if you want to compare the two games in the summer league first against Charlotte and then against uh, Portland against Charlotte. He just looks sluggish. He looks slid, didn't he? He looks sluggish and slow, timid, lost, confused, both ends of the floor. Looked overwhelmed. Kind of reminded me of Yao Ming. And when, when people are wanting to be speaking about, um, you know, what do you think about uh, how his career is going to go? Or how do you think he's going to start? Is he going to come in in his first game and just dominate and do great? Or is it going to take some time? I remember Yao Ming, a guy who was also supposed to. A lot of people forget the impact that Yao Ming was supposed to have coming to the NBA from China. Here was a guy who was, what was he, like seven five seven six something like that, somewhere around that range. And here was a guy who could put the ball on the floor. Here was a guy who was big and strong. Here was a guy who had good ball skills, good fundamental skills. Here was a guy who could shoot the 15 to 18 foot shot. Here was a guy who was supposed to revolutionize the center position. Yao Ming was supposed to be the next in line. He was supposed to take the torch 
from Shaquille O'Neal and be that guy that was going to be dominating the NBA year after year after year and change the game similar to the way Nikola Jokic changed the game in terms of Yao having a game that could be taken farther away from the basket because of his myriad of skills. Well, when Yao first got into the NBA, his first couple of weeks or even months, oh, it was slow going, man. He looked lost, he looked confused, he looked out of sync, he looked overwhelmed, he looked uncomfortable. I remember there was a game, because I remember this because the guys in the um, TNT, Shaq wasn't with those guys uh, inside the NBA, but it was uh, Chuck and Kenny and Ernie, and they were doing a game, Houston and Phoenix, and Yao Ming got crossed up by a guard. I don't know if it was Nash or somebody, but he was taken out on the perimeter he was, um, you know, they did the okie doke and down went, down went Ming. Timber off of a move. Shook him. Yao went down. Um, the uh, guard for Phoenix made a layup. And, uh, you know, everybody was laughing and joking. And Charles and Kenny were laughing and joking and this, that, and the other. And it, 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 that was the point that uh, Yao hit rock bottom. And that's where really a lot of the talk was, man, this guy, this guy sucks. <laughs> this, this guy ain't doing nothing. Because not only was he doing nothing on the defensive end, he was doing nothing on the offensive end. And then one day, it's like the switch went on, and Yao, it was like night and day, man. Yao got so much better by the uh, end of his rookie year. Now, he had injuries and other stuff to deal with, but it was a situation where his first couple of months in the NBA for him, it was tough. You're speaking about a guy who didn't speak English, coming over to a brand new culture, relatively young. So it took Yao a while uh, playing for Houston to finally get his footing and to finally become um, a successful basketball player to where now he's in the NBA and respected uh, by his peers. But it took time. It took time. And I, and I think that's what's going to be the situation with uh, Victor. Here's going to be a guy who, look, man, he's not going to come into the NBA and dominate. He's, he's not going to come in there and, and be a LeBron. He's not going to do what Magic did. He's not going to do what Tim Duncan did. He's not going to do what David Robinson did. He's not going to put up these unbelievable numbers. He'll have nights where he'll look even worse than he did against Charlotte. And then he'll have nights where he's going to play even better than he did against Portland. He's going to put on some performances probably near the end of the season to where it's going to be like, wow, man, this is going to be unbelievable. But I'm telling you right now, from what I saw from the Summer League, and I'll speak about this in the next segment of the program, I'm not joking. I think Scoot Henderson's going to be the MVP or the uh, Rookie of the Year. I really do. And look, I, I, it's, it's one game. And I don't think Scoot's playing anymore. And it's one game, and you're speaking about, damn, Wendell, you're up here up, you know, you're up here preaching and teaching to us about not getting too high or too low off of what, not just one game, but two games from Wimbanyana. And based on what you saw um, in the one game that Scoot played in which he didn't finish because of a shoulder surgery, or uh, excuse me, a shoulder injury, you're saying that uh, he's going to be the rookie of the year based off that? And you're telling us to tamper expectations? I'm just telling you, man, you take a look at what Scoot did in the first game. You, you, you take a look at what he's going to be doing for Portland. You speak about the maturity level. I'm telling you this right now. I think, and this is not going to be a knock on Wimbanyana. And if Wimbanyana doesn't win the rookie of the year, it doesn't mean that he's a bust or he's a disappointment or anything like that. I'm just saying, I think from what I saw in the very small, minute 
examples or, or moments of Scoot Henderson, I think this guy is going to. Uh, I think this guy is going to be uh, the rookie of the year because I think that his acclimation to the NBA is going to be a lot quicker than Wembenyana. Now, when you're speaking about the totality of their careers and you realize that when you're building legends, when you're building greatness, when you're building resumes, it's definitely a marathon and not a sprint. So while Victor might not win the sprint, he's definitely going to win the marathon. I think that at the beginning, at least the first Definitely the first part of the season as Victor gets acclimated again, not just to a new style of play, not just to a new team, a new league and everything like that, but a new country and culture. I think Scoot is going to have the, um, he's going to have the um, advantage in, in terms of that. I think, I think Scoot's going to put up really good numbers. So we'll see. We will see. But yeah, I mean, when Banyana, we, we, we speak about, you know, when Banyana, what's going to be happening? What's going to be going on? What's going to be doing this? What are the expectations for when Banyana this upcoming season, right? Because I've heard some folks, when, when you're speaking about a guy who has been touted as the greatest prospect in sports history, <laughs> it's a situation where, wait, 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 wait. If you're if you're going to call that out, if you're going to put that on tape, if you're going to put that to the folks, man, what should be the expectations then for the upcoming season for Wimbanyana? Is 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 Wimbanyana should he have the same? Should he have the speculation, or should there be speculation that all of a sudden San Antonio, who went twenty two and sixty, should they be contending for a playoff spot or a play in spot? In the, in, the, in the play-in tournament? Should, should that be the expectations now for, for San Antonio? Because if you're speaking about, again, Wimbanyana being the greatest prospect of them all, what exactly does that mean? Are we speaking about the greatest prospect once he reaches year five, year six? Are we speaking about him coming right out the gates? We are speaking about prospects. This is not baseball where you go to the minors for a little bit, then you come in. I mean, what are we, what are we talking about here? Each sport has its own like, hey, look, man, learning curve, getting better, this, that, and the other. So for Wimbanyana being the best prospect, better than LeBron, better than Bryce Harper, when he was a baseball prodigy out here in um, Nevada. When you're speaking about Steven Strasburg, who was a prodigy when he was pitching at San Diego State. When you're, when you're speaking about um, a Mark, uh, a, 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 a Lawrence, Trevor Lawrence for the Jacksonville Jaguars being a, a Peyton Manning, a uh, John Elway, one of those type of prospects. Those are all prospects going into a pro game. So with Wimbanyana, if he truly is going to be arguably greater than all of those or even on the same level, what should be the expectations for the San Antonio Spurs? Again, finishing with the second worst record in the league tied with Houston for the second worst record in the league only behind Detroit. What should be the expectations for San Antonio moving into this season? Because last season, look, the, if you speak about the four teams that played in the play-in tournament in the Western Conference, which were the Lakers, the Minnesota Timberwolves, the OKC, Thunder, and New Orleans Pelicans, those teams won between 43 and 40 games, right? So San Antonio, if they finished 22-60 and 60 last season, the, the team that played in the play-in game had somewhere between 40 and 43 games won. You're speaking about San Antonio having to improve at least somewhere between 18 to 22 games just to have the opportunity to play in the tur- play-in tournament to play in the playoffs. 
So when you take a look at some of the number one impacts in the NBA drafts, and you see what their win total is, let's just take the, the, the um, draft picks from the last five draft classes. Anthony Edwards averaged 19 points to four rebounds in this rookie year. Minnesota improved only four wins from 19 to 23. Zion played only 24 games because of injury. He averaged somewhere between 22 and 6. But without him... New Orleans dropped their win total three games from 33 to 30. DeAndre Ayton's rookie year with Phoenix, when he averaged 16 and 10, and how much would Phoenix love for DeAndre Ayton to average 16 and 10 this season with the squad that they got around him? But uh, DeAndre Ayton, his rookie year in Phoenix, they went from 21 wins to 19 wins. You, you take a look at uh, some of the others, the Pablo Bancaro, you take a look at him. Kate Cunningham averaged 17 points, 5 rebounds, 5 assists. Detroit win total improved only 3 games from 20 to 23. Ben Carroll averaged 20 points, 7 rebounds. Orlando improved from 22 wins to uh, from 22 wins to 34 wins. So what, what are we speaking about here? Where are we going with this? MJ, his rookie year, Chicago went from 27 wins to 38 wins. He averaged 28, 6, and 6. LeBron... Cleveland team went from 17 wins to 35 wins. He averaged 21, 5, and 6. Luka, their team, Dallas, his rookie season, they went from 24 wins to win the year before the 33 wins. He averaged 21, 8, and 6. So where are we Where are we going here? What are we talking about? Talking about following Wimbanyana, following in the footsteps of Duncan and Robinson. Yeah, look, Robinson won the rookie of the year. The Spurs improved 35 games from 21 to 56. Robinson averaged 24 points, 12 rebounds, 4 blocks, 2 assists. Tim Duncan, which, by the way, was the last traditional basketball player in terms of we went to four years of college, would have been the number one pick after his sophomore year, but stayed not just one extra year in college, like Shaquille O'Neal, where Shaquille was the would have been the number one pick after his freshman year. He stayed all the way to his junior year, but uh, uh, Tim Duncan who would have been the number one pick that sophomore year. Instead, the uh, Joe Smith out of Maryland went number one. But Tim Duncan, with the last guy who actually stayed four years, would have been the number one draft pick after his sophomore year. He came into the league and averaged 21, 11, two assists, two blocks over all 82 games. And the Spurs improved from 21 wins to uh, 56 wins. But but here here's the situation, idiotic, nonsense, uh, not a good policy. Here, here's the thing about Wimbanyana. When you start comparing Robinson and Duncan and the impact that they should have on the team, and you start comparing, well, this is what Wimbanyana should be compared against with Robinson and Tim Duncan. When Tim Duncan came into the league, again, he was in, what, he was, what, 22 years old? When David Robinson came into the league, he was in his mid-20s, because if you remember, he had to, he was with the uh, Navy he grew, what, seven, eight inches between his freshman and sophomore year or some nonsense like that, which was the reason why he went to the uh, Naval Academy. So he had to obligate his, um, you know, he had to fulfill his obligations. So when David Robinson came into the league as a rookie, I think he was like 25 or 26. He did the Roger Stallback in terms of not coming in as a traditional rookie. So those are some of the advantages. And when, and when Tim Duncan came into the uh, league with the uh, Spurs. You had Sean Elliott, you had Avery Johnson, and you had, oh, by the way, Tim Dunk, excuse me, David Robinson. All of those guys missed most of last season, the season before, because of uh, injury, and basically San Antonio tanked. So those are some of the, those are some of the advantages 
that um, Duncan and Robinson had that Wembenyana is not going to have. Here's the thing, man. I, I, when you speak about, you know, when, when you speak about where is he going to play, what's going to be happening, without question, you can see very easily, very easily, that Wembenyana patterned his game off of Kevin Durant. Because from what I saw in the two games, Wembenyana is not moving anywhere close to the basket for rebounds. He's not attacking the defensive boards. He's not attacking the offensive boards. He didn't block out anybody. I mean, the first thing that they should do in San Antonio is to teach that man how to box out somebody. Because in the games against Charlotte and Portland, not only you could talk about fatigue and other things. No, he didn't even attempt to try to uh, box out people. So that, that's the first thing he's going to have to uh, have to do. His mindset is going to have to change because he does not like to go close to the basket. The farther away that he can and get the ball and start isolating and dribbling and doing all these type of things that Kevin Durant can do, he ain't going to be able to do that. He ain't going to be able to do that when he reaches his physical prime. And this is something that he is, never, he is not going to do. Seven feet four guys cannot do the things that Kevin Durant can do. Very few people can do the things that Kevin Durant can do. Probably in the history of the game, only Kevin Durant can do the things that Kevin Durant can do as a scorer. So some of the things that Victor Wimbignan is trying to emulate as a guy who's seven foot three or seven foot three and a half or seven foot four, those things are not going to be available to him. He's definitely a small forward. I don't think that he'll see a day in his life playing a traditional center. Zach Collins for the Spurs is going to be the guy that's going to be um, the center for the uh, Spurs. And whether it was David Robinson or Rasho Nesterovich or or others, Tim Duncan was also never a quote-unquote center until it became winning time later on in his career. But um, for his physical prime, when he finally reaches the point where he is ready to dominate the NBA when he has those tools and he has that mindset and he has that uh, he has that comfortability and he has those expectations and he's actually able to do it mind, body, and soul. I think we're going to be looking at Wenbanyana as a guy who should try to revolutionize the power forward position, be a stretch point power forward more than anything else. Take a, If I were him, yes, I would take a look at the way Kevin Durant plays. But if I'm the Spurs... I also show him clips and tapes of not only just Tim Duncan, but also Nikola Jokic. Um, because guys who were seven feet tall out there having perimeter games, that's not much of an anomaly as it is, if you would think. Nikola Jokic can play from the perimeter. Joel Embiid can play from the perimeter. Of course, Kevin Durant, the best example, if you throw in his wingspan, he has the size of possibly a seven-footer the best example of a guy who can put the ball on the floor and move, groove, and do all those type of things. But what Victor's going to have to do is he's going to have to learn. He's going to have to go ahead and learn to get his game inside of the three-point line a lot more, get himself closer to the basket, and be able to operate from, I would say, 16 to 18 to 19 feet. Because you give him the ball 25 feet away from the basket and you, and you ISO him, uh, so far, doesn't look good. Um, picking and popping, I'm quite sure in a couple of years, a three-point shot will improve. One of the things that many people kind of forget when you're speaking about Victor Wimbanyana is, oh my goodness, a three-point shot. No, 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 no. There's been enough sample size to know that Victor is not an efficient three-point shooter. This past season in France, 
He only shot 27% from the three-point line. So Wimbenyana is not going to be coming in as a guy who, in the NBA, his first season is going to be shooting 35-38% from the three-point line or even 30, uh, 33%. If Victor can get somewhere 30-31% on an average and maybe three to four three-point shots a game, yeah, he's a lot more for the three-point line like Russell Westbrook than he is Kevin Durant. So those who think that this is going to be a guy who's going to be floating and shooting pull-up 25-footers, uh, no, don't think so. That, don't think that's going to happen. But then again, we're, we're speaking about expectations. Again, we're speaking about um, some things in terms of what he needs to do to get better. All of those things will work out for themselves. But uh, again, I, I always want to go back to Look, man, from what I saw from Wimbanyana, uh, in, the, in, the, in the culture, in the coaching, he's, he's going to get the best of everything. He, he didn't, he's not going to the Wizards. He's not going to a ragtag organization. He's going to the strongest possible place that he could go to. So if anybody can bring out the best of Wimbanyana in terms of the way he plays, the structure, the ideals, the formation, everything, San Antonio is going to be that. Again, my thoughts and opinions is the first couple of years that he's going to be in the league is going to be a situation where, look, man, all this talk about maybe they should go out and get a Damian Lillard. Maybe they should go out and try to uh, expedite the process in terms of the San Antonio Spurs organization from going to 22 wins to trying to uh, become serious playoff, uh, not, 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 not playoff contenders, but, uh, you know, kind of speed up the process of where they're going to be one of the elite teams, take a couple of steps forward in that regards, skip a couple of steps. Uh, based on what I saw the first two games in Vegas with Wimbanyana, I, I think you need to uh, stay the course. I think you need to go ahead, have the San Antonio Spurs stink again this year, have Wimbanyana take his lumps, get back into the lottery or get back with a, another high draft pick and then build from there. You have Keldon Johnson. You have some other uh, pieces. Uh, Jeremy Shohan, there's some other pieces, Devin Vaselli, that the San Antonio Spurs have that you can build around. Now, with when Mignana added to the mix, Trey Jones comes in at the point guard. Zach Collins is going to be the center. Now you let Wimbanyana take his lumps. Now you let Wimbanyana learn. Now you let Wimbanyana have plenty of welcome to the NBA moments. You let Wimbanyana get his ass whooped by Joel Embiid. You let Wimbanyana get physically dominated by Embiid and by Jokic and by these guys. You let Embiid get yoked on a couple of times by the likes of Giannis and Anthony Edwards and stuff. You let him uh, go through that. You let him go through the bump. You let him learn that way. You suffer the pains and the slings and the arrows that's going to be coming when he does have a bad night, when he is going to be going through a stretch where he's going to be shooting 32% from the field and 24% from the three-point line. And in 10 games, San Antonio is going to have a 2-8 and stretch or a 3-7 stretch. You let him go through all that. You let those young players go through all that. You let that young core go through all that. Have them take their lumps. And then let him get, you know, when, when, when March rolls around and then near the end of April, maybe the last, I don't know, 25, 20 games, you, you come back and see if there's going to be some type of bump in Wembenyana's play. And you let that marinate, you let that grow, you, 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 you uh, dote on that, you let that mature, you let that grow. And season by season, man, it's a long process to be great. It took MJ seven years to win a championship. It took LeBron seven years to win a championship. It took Kareem having Oscar Robertson to win a championship. It took Shaquille O'Neal a long time to win a championship for him. And this stuff doesn't happen overnight. 
So you let Ben Benyana go through the steps, follow the process, and I think when everything is all said and done, again, with Pop signing that five-year contract extension, the team that he's going to be on, the culture that he's going to be in, when everything is all said and done with the quote-unquote process, I think everything will be fruitful and fantastic in the land of San Antonio. Last segment of the podcast. Last segment of the program. Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. So speaking about Victor Wembanyama, one of the things that I enjoyed, though, one of the things that is going to be pretty evident is his maturity and the fact of um, I think that he's going to be easy to uh, coach. What I liked about a Wembanyama when I was watching him in the games this past weekend against Charlotte and against Portland is the fact that, you know, here's a guy who, when he was on the bench, he was engaged. When he was on the bench, he was clapping for his teammates. His body language was good. Um, when there was a timeout and he was on the bench, he got up off the bench, was there to uh, congratulate his teammates while they were going to the uh, bench. I mean, there wasn't a situation where it was all about him and it was a situation where this is all about me and some of these guys that I'm going to be playing with today, I'm not going to be playing with and they're not going to be part of the part of the process and it's all about me and he never had a a, a bad never the, the body language was still good um there wasn't any side eye looking at uh, any of the guards when he didn't get the ball there wasn't any type of a negative body language uh facial expressions anytime a guy when the um when his teammates scored he was there to clap he was exuberant uh, when his teammates did something well, both when he was on the bench and when he was on the uh, court. So those are some good signs, I think, that uh, falls within the San Antonio culture. It's not about me, it's about we. So those are some of the things from a uh, maturity standpoint. I love that. I love the press conferences um, afterwards. We's like, hey, you know what? I got to get, I got to get better. I love that maturity level. I love the honesty and I love the confidence that he showed. Um, kind of reminded me a lot of the Mannings, especially, I remember when Eli Manning, uh, his last uh, season as a starter, and he would throw five or six interceptions, or he would make some bad plays, and the New York media, after the game, would ask him about it, and, um, you know, Manning would be like, yeah, it was a bad read, should have made the uh, proper throw, but uh, you know what, that was my mistake, and we'll get better. Next, it wasn't, it wasn't a situation where he tried to put the blame on anybody else, it was a mature professional answer that was one thing about Eli Manning I always enjoyed his press conferences because it was like a situation where a question was directed at him and the question was directed at him so he could answer yeah I suck and it was a bad read and I shouldn't be playing it was one of those type of questions and put in put in a type of uh, phrase to where 
he was trying to get that answer from him. And Eli would be like, yeah, yeah, it was a bad read. I should have uh, done this, and instead I did that. But uh, that's my mistake. I'll learn from it, and we'll move on. That won't happen again. Next, so it was those questions or those things that Wimbenyana, that was the kind of tone I think Wimbenyana was a setting, and I enjoyed it. I really did. Good for him. So like I said, last segment of the program, I want to get into, again, I, I made the comment before about Scoot. Scoot Henderson, right? Scoot Henderson being the uh, rookie of the year. Stand by that. Those games, the game that he had against Houston, um, I think was very, very impressive. Um, number one, he has the physical skills already there in the NBA. And when I say physical skills, I'm not just meaning the running and the jumping. I'm speaking about the physical build. It's already right there for Scoot to uh, do some things in the NBA to where, you know what, um, even though he got injured against Houston, I think this is going to be a guy as a 19 or 20-year-old playing in the league that's going to be more durable than your average 19 or 20 year old rookie the fact that he's going to be with Portland it's going to give him a lot of opportunities to shine and I think that he's going to be on a team with Dayton Sharp who was terrible against San Antonio but very good in the game against Houston I think that uh, those two are going to be interesting to watch um, as they grow depending upon what exchange or what happens with Damian Lillard I think that uh, Scoot Again, based on the little evidence that I have, so far he should be showing the Portland Trailblazers boss and the franchises and the ones who write the checks, the owner, the fact that, hey, you know what? This is a guy who I think that we can build a team around that can compete for a championship. John Wall, Russell Westbrook, Derrick Rose type of comparisons, type of build, type of athleticism is what I saw out of Scoot Henderson. His ability to shoot the ball was a lot better than people gave him credits for. So, yeah, and that uh, I, I like his leadership. I like the uh, mentality, his attitude that he had on the court. So I think uh, Scoot uh, is going to be the real deal. I think Scoot in the year 2027, 20, 28, 29 is going to be that guy who's going to be on the all-NBA team. So Scoot was uh, really, that's how much, that's how much Scoot Henderson um, impressed me. Other takeaways. Look, man, you know, you speak about the top five picks with Wembenyana and Henderson, and then you take Brandon Miller, and then the Thompson twins, Amir and Amen and Asar. Um, wow. All of them look, except for Brandon Miller, who struggled 9 to 32 and his moments playing not just in Salt Lake City, but also in Vegas. Ugh, man. You're talking about Houston. You're speaking about Detroit, you're speaking about San Antonio and uh, Portland getting it right. I thought the Thompson Twins were very, very impressive. Now, uh, uh, amen, uh, God bless them. He came down with an injury. You get that amen, God bless them. Lord have mercy. I thought you would think that would be funny. Jesus Christ. So uh, he came down with an injury on, on his ankle, but uh, Asir, he, well, he made a brilliant p- pass. Ooh, I forgot what game. I loved it against Houston. I don't know what it was, but he made a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant next-level pass off the break to um, James Weissman for a dunk on a fast break. It was against uh, Orlando. It was against Orlando. He was just showing me some stuff where, like, the Thompson Twins are going to be some some players that you're going to have to deal with. Um, again, Charlotte taking Brandon Miller uh, instead of Scoot. If everything, if, if, and again, very small sample, extremely small sample. I get it. We're not taking anything away from Summer League. Brandon Miller is still 19 years old. He looks like a younger, smaller, slower Paul George. 
But uh, we'll see what happens. If the comps are going to be right, man, this is going to be a situation where, um, um, you know, the Charlotte, not only is he going to, not, not only are they going to get barbecued for passing on Scoot Henderson maybe five or six years from now, but also on the uh, Thompson Twins. So it'll it'll be interesting to see Mitch Kupchak's uh, resume if things don't pan out in that regard. But Miller looked a little bit shaky, but then again, that's it's a situation where, all right, I was taking a look at also um, Houston, and one of the things that's interesting that I always like to take a look at, not so much in terms of the rookies, but as far as the second-year players, I want to see what they're up to. I want to see how they're doing. I want to see some of the guys who were the number one picks last year going through a full season in the NBA, going through their ups and downs, their trials and tribulations, and their victories and personal defeats. I want to see how well they play coming into summer league because that's also going to um, tell the tale of how not only their careers are going to go, but also how much improvement that they can give to a team in their second year. I thought uh, Jabari Smith for Houston was fantastic. Houston is going to be interesting. Houston is going to be very interesting. Cam Whitmore looks like a guy for a bad team growing, learning, experiencing, can be a rotation player from what he showed in um, – in the uh, summer league, summer league is not over yet, but uh, the games that he uh, had, he has the body to be able to hold up again for a team that's going to be learning, a team that's going to be growing, a team that's going to be young, a team that's going to be introducing a new coach like the Houston Rockets are. I think Whitmore is a guy who uh, can definitely get some playing time. Um, it's going to be interesting to see him and Thompson and the rotation that they have with that young team, what, what Houston's going to be doing with Kevin Porter Jr., what they're going to be doing with Jalen Green, the impact Jabari Smith once this summer league is over to where possibly he could be named the MVP of the summer league, the way that he's been playing, how that's going to translate, not just on an individual standpoint going into his second season in Houston, but how that translates also and how impactful it's going to be in Houston's success as they continue to grow now with Emeka Udoka as the uh, new head coach, leave the white women alone there, Udeke. Come on now. Uh, but uh, so so that's going to be interesting also. And I'm also, man, I'm, you know what, kind of flying under the radar as I uh, end with this. I'll speak about the uh, NBA free agents uh, next uh, podcast. I'm going to get out of here. But, uh, you know, also that I saw that really impressed me was Chet Holmgren. We're, we're kind of sleeping a little bit on the Oklahoma City Thunder. And when you have a guy like Shea Gilgis-Alexander, all-NBAer, you're speaking about the steady improvement of a Josh Giddy. You're speaking about some of the rookies from last season for Oklahoma City who played well. You, speak, you take a look at that culture. Now you throw in Holmgren. Is, sec, is um, Oklahoma City going to have the same type of turnaround this season, are they going to be this upcoming season Sacramento Kings, a team that really hasn't been prevalent, a team that really hasn't been relevant all of a sudden now with this young talent being one of the more up-and-coming teams? You already have a superstar on your team. You already have an all-NBA player on your team. Now Holmgren, someone that we completely forgot, King comes in a little bit stronger, comes in more mature, comes in sort of protecting the rim, comes in more built, more sturdy. Are we looking at the Oklahoma City Thunder? Eric G, who does the show on the uh, Sports Animal, 11-2. to 2. 
Eric G, are we taking a look along with Pat Jones? Are, are, are we taking a look out there in Tulsa, Oklahoma, as he's breaking down the Oklahoma City Thunder, been following the Oklahoma City Thunder? Eric G, are we speaking about a team here in Oklahoma City that forget the playing game in which they were in last year? Are we? Uh, uh, it's is it possible? It's the expectations now at the fact that hey, you know what? We need to be looking at maybe a fifth or a fourth seed. Is it plausible? Is it realistic to say that if everything goes well with the Oklahoma City Thunder and Holmgren plays up to, oh, I don't know, 75% of what the expectations are combined with everything else, are we taking a look at the Oklahoma City Thunder being a team that can be a four seed or a five seed, winning 50 games, 48, 52 games this season? If everyone stays healthy, if everyone stays the course, depending upon what happens with the Nuggets and the Grizzlies and the Lakers and the Clippers and the Timberwolves and the Jazz and everybody else in the um, Western Conference, talk to me, Mr. G. Talk to me. So those are the things. The the, the Lakers did well in in free agency. Austin Rivers coming back. Um, That team is going to be interesting to watch. Of course, all of that, all of the moves that the Lakers made, all the signings, the re-signings that the Lakers made um, to put them back in the position to where they were last season, where they were four games away from winning the uh, Western Conference. The fact that they signed D'Angelo Russell, the fact that they signed uh, Gabe Vincent, they signed Torian Prince, they signed Cam Reddish, whatever. They signed Jackson Hayes, whatever. But, uh, of course, Austin Reeves, who I think is going to get invaluable experience, confidence, an improvement in his game when he plays for Team USA in uh, August. Um, the fact that they signed him for a reasonable contract for them to save money to go out and really fulfill that, um, fulfill the um, the squad that's going to be around LeBron and AD. Of course, the key is going to be LeBron and AD. It's night that you sign Prince. It's night that you sign Russell. It's night that you sign Rui Hachimura. A little bit, little bit too much in terms of three-year, fifty-one million. Then you know. But, hey, it ain't my money, and three years are three years, so, I mean, you know, it ain't that bad of a risk. But the money is a little bit after just basically what he did against Memphis in the playoffs, mainly. Interesting. And Golden State, interesting. But, um, you know, despite all of the signings, the uh, team that the Lakers put around is still going to be revolving around AD and LeBron. And basically... Who should it be revolving around more if you're the Lakers? More toward Anthony Davis or more toward LeBron James? So far, so good in terms of reports about AD and LeBron being relatively healthy uh, this summer, being able to put in some work, being able to, uh, you know, put the work in to be ready for the season. Um, I'm just interested to see all the drama LeBron, his son, coming into the league and him stating that his one of his dreams is to go ahead and play with his son. So all of that, that this is going to be the swan song for LeBron James playing for the Los Angeles Lakers. How much of that is going to be a deterrent or a detriment or an anchor or a weighted vest around what the Lakers want to do in terms of getting back to the uh, NBA Finals and the uh, Western Conference Finals and such. So, all of those things are awesome. All of those things are great. All right, I'm out of here. I'm good to go. Um, I want to thank you so much for listening to my podcast. Of course, I'll be back with more wonderful, wonderful sports talk regarding, I don't know, I guess what, college football is going to be starting. Not yet. The NFL training camps are going to be starting. Still, uh, 
still quiet, still uh, not so much, but I will keep the James Harden and Damian Lillard watch for you. If anything happens regarding those two clowns, I will go ahead and they're not clowns. I'm just joking. Um, I will go ahead and report when he maybe uh, gives some more sports talk or maybe gives some more talk on what happened in the uh, NBA Summer League. And again, anything, anything that happens in the world of sports, you can hear it right here on Wendell's World of Sports. Be good to each other, will you? Do me a favor and be good to each other. Love each other. Give respect for those who need respect. And uh, treat those who want to be treated, who deserve your love and affection and respect. Regardless of race, creed, color, religion, who they love, all that good stuff. Let me go out here and enjoy this 116 degree heat that's going to be coming around this uh, this this uh, weekend. Sucks. Get me out of here with some music. Thank you.